Hello and welcome to H2 Orthopedics. My name is Mike Begg. I'm a certified physician assistant, a certified athletic trainer. I have a doctorate degree in medical science and over 30 years of experience in sports medicine, orthopedics, and medical education. My goal is to take your orthopedic diagnosis or injury and help you make sense of it. Welcome to H2 Orthopedics. This is Mike. And today's topic is uh, really stems from a couple of patients that have come in, uh, I'll say in the last six months or so. I'm going to kind of condense them and just kind of give a kind of a case study uh, scenario on this one, uh, just to kind of mix it up a little bit. I have a, a fair number of um, people who are interested in this podcast who are students, either athletic training students that are working in a clinical setting, uh, PA students, or even PAs are just getting into orthopedics. Uh, a couple of medical students. So uh, they've kind of requested more of the case study scenario. It's a good way to learn. Uh, they can kind of hear real real life stories and figure out, uh, you know, can we work this up on our own, at least in our mind, kind of in a practice scenario. So uh, I may switch over to that format here uh, more often uh, here in the upcoming uh, few few shows. But the, I'm going to do that today just to, to kind of, you know, appease that and see how it goes, really to see how things, how they work out. So uh, today's today's topic is what we call a chondral defect. So the case scenario is, uh, let's just make it up, a 45-year-old male comes into the office and um, is complaining of knee pain and some swelling, a fair amount of swelling, so moderate effusion or moderate swelling in the joint, pain, let's say, on the medial side or inside of his knee, and he gives history of having had uh, misstepped coming down the stairs. Let's say he was at the gym, he was working out, uh, it was leg day, so he maybe a little fatigued and tired. Uh, he's leaving the gym, and he has to go down some steps to get to his car uh, to get out of the building. Uh, his phone rings. He's on the phone. He's got his gym bag over one shoulder. Uh, he's tired because he did leg day, and he, he misjudged the last step. He didn't see the last step, so basically took two at once and landed on his knee in a forceful manner, uh, kind of bending forward, uh, and had significant pain on the inside of his knee at that moment and ever since. Uh, it has somewhat resolved or somewhat gotten better, uh, but uh, as time goes by, it just really isn't getting better. It's a nagging pain. This happened two weeks ago. He uh, he hurt his knee before, so he had taken some ice, uh, or elevated his knee, put some ice in there, taken some anti-inflammatories like Motrin, let's say 400 milligrams three times a day. Uh, and this is helping. All these things are helping, uh, but now he still has swelling in his knee or an effusion that keeps him from flexing and extending his knee, straightening and bending his knee all the way and pain on the inside or medial side of his knee. And uh, he knows some some uh, friends of his who have had uh, meniscus cartilage tears, and he thinks that's what it is. Uh, he's worried about his ACLs, anterior cruciate ligament, because he knows uh, the amount of swelling uh, is typically pretty significant with those injuries. Uh, so he comes to the office for the first time to see you with this problem. Uh, otherwise healthy, uh, 45-year-old guy, no medical problems, no diabetes, no blood pressure, no thyroid, uh, no depression, no, no medications, uh, no allergies. Uh, overall, pretty healthy guy uh, just in the gym trying to, you know, fulfill uh, his active lifestyle uh, desires. So uh, he comes in, you walk into the room, uh, and you introduce yourself. Um, as, you're, as you begin your exam, uh, you notice that uh, just from gross examination, let's see, his right knee is involved in me. Uh, right knee is swollen. It has an effusion. You can see that on examination. So you know there's something going on inside the joint. The effusion uh, by def definition, is swelling inside the joint. 
that's Mike's definition, but it's easy to kind of imagine that. Swelling is more diffuse, so more soft tissue. So an effusion is swelling within the joint, confined to the joint. So that helps you as an investigator uh, with your diagnosis to kind of look at structures that are inside the joint. So in the knee, uh, there are quite a few, but, but really the list is relatively short uh, in regards to a large effusion. So gross examination, we see that there's a large effusion. Patient doesn't want to straighten his leg all the way out straight, so he lacks about five, maybe seven degrees from full extension. And when you ask him to do that, he can, but he's more comfortable with the knee slightly flexed. Uh, he can bend his knee or flex his knee to approximately 90, 95 degrees. And he states that there's tightness in the joint, the, the effusion, uh, but there's also some discomfort or pain on the inside or medial side of the joint line. So you have him come back out straight. Uh, you first start to palpate the knee and you do a little patellar mobilization. So you put your hands, your fingers on either side of his kneecap. You can feel that effusion. You can feel that swelling in the joint just underneath your hands. It's kind of a boggy, swollen joint. You can mobilize his kneecap. You can push it onto the medial side and there's firm endpoint. He's not apprehensive. He doesn't, he doesn't, he isn't scared of that. And you can translate, excuse me, translate it laterally. Uh, again, no, no apprehension and no pain. He, um, but he, but he kind of gives that, you know, it just doesn't feel right in my knee. Um, comes back up, you, you put him at, say, 90 degrees uh, where he's relatively comfortable, put his foot on the table, and you palpate the lateral, the outside of the joint line. No tenderness on his joint line, laterally. No tenderness at the femoral origin or the fibular head insertion of his fibular collateral ligament, the big ligament on the outside of the knee that gives you support side to side. Uh, no pain at the fibular head where it attaches. Um, you can mobilize or you can grab his fibular head. It doesn't feel like it's loose or, or shifting. Uh, so really the lateral side of his knee is pretty asymptomatic. You go over and palpate the medial, excuse me, the lateral border of his patella, his kneecap, no pain there. You come down onto the tendon, the patellar tendon, no pain there. You can get to the tibial tubercle on the shin bone where it attaches, no pain there. You go up above, no pain in the retinaculum or where the quadriceps are coming in, but you can feel a lot of swelling or effusion. And you may kind of complain of some tightness or some bruise type feeling, some achiness up there, but really no focal area of tenderness, no focal area of deformity. So you're going to assume his quadriceps are okay. Yeah, his patella is not really painful, so you don't, you don't think he dislocated his patella. His joint line on the lateral side, no pain. So again, no, no meniscal symptoms. Uh, his collateral ligament on the, on the lateral side looks to be fine as well. Go to the medial side of his knee, and he palpate along the medial joint line. And you get a directly medial and kind of slightly posterior medial, and he has some discomfort or pain. So now, now we have a finding. So medial-sided joint line tenderness. As we palpate up onto the, the femoral origin of his MCL, medial collateral ligament, no real pain there. You kind of come down along the ligament course to the tibial side, no pain there. Um, so good. So his collateral ligaments look to be okay, but he has that medial-sided joint line tenderness. When you go back to the medial border of his patella, uh, his, knee, again, his knee flexed about 90 degrees, come across that medial border of the patella, inferior medial on the patella, you're, you kind of find a hot spot. So you're palpating the medial border of the, of the patella, but think what else is there? What's deep to that? And the, and the answer would be the trochlear groove on the medial side. So you come down and you kind of feel a little hot spot on that femur. So just above the medial joint line, and you palpate a little bit more towards the central portion of that condyle. And that's where he's focally tender. That's where he has pain, which is a bit of a unique, and it's almost like an eye test, you know, which is better you know, A, and they click the thing, and B, and you're like, I don't know, they look the same to me. But the joint line versus a condyle sometimes is a difficult uh, decision to make as far as where the tenderness is or where the pain is or where the symptom is because it's really pretty close. It's within probably a centimeter, and we're often touching. 
and they actually touch one another as you go through range of motion. So it kind of depends on the angle of bend of the knee. But this in general is to say he has medial sided joint line tenderness or perhaps slightly above the joint line. All right, so we, we found, found something there we need to keep in mind and put it on our list of suspects. We'll take him out into, you know, 30 degrees of, from full extension. We'll test his collateral ligaments. We'll go to full extension, test his collateral ligaments. They're, they're, they're fine. So with various and valgus stress to the collateral ligaments, no problems at all. Ligament testing shows that there's no pain. There's no joint space opening, and you have a firm or crisp endpoint. You go back and, you know, stabilize his femur. You're going to grasp, grasp his uh, tibia approximately, so by the knee joint, and you're going to translate the tibia anteriorly anterior or towards the ceiling in reference to the femur in a Lachman's exam. Uh, again, firm endpoint, no increased translation. You bend his knee back up to that 90 degree mark. You can push and pull on the tibia, do an anterior and posterior drawer. Again, firm endpoint. Some pain, he has that medial pain when you do that, but, but no laxity to the, to the ligament structures. So, so far we have findings of a large effusion and medial-sided tenderness, a joint line versus just slightly above the joint line as our main findings. Ligament tests, all negative. Everything else looks pretty good. He can contract his quadriceps, but he has a lag. When he bends or when he straightens his knee or tries to lift his leg straight, uh, he's not able to keep it fully extended. And that can be from that swelling or effusion. There's a, a, a feedback mechanism. If you have a stretched capsule, i.e. effusion, uh, the quadriceps are told to shut down. So quadricep inhibition, and it usually leads to a little bit of a bend in the knee when you raise your leg or try to do a straight leg raise. So he has a lag. Uh, he can flex to, I'm going to say, 95 to 100 degrees, and he lacks full extension by 5 to 7 degrees. Neurologically intact, otherwise negative calf pain, you know, negative homeless exam. Everything else looks to be okay. So what is our first workup step? So we've done our exam. we got his history. So he came out of the gym, kind of had that, that sudden you know, step off those, those bottom couple steps of the uh, staircase. And then our exam, we just went through. So what's our first step of workup? Uh, I would get x-rays. So this guy is 45, mid 40s. Um, he could have some early osteoarthritic change that we just aggravated uh, with that sudden jolt. And so x-rays will help us see that. Um, I don't think I'm going to find a fracture. And honestly, even though I don't like this part of medicine these days, if I want to take this a step further, which I'm considering getting an MRI or other studies, x-rays are almost always required by an insurance company to be read as negative or no arthritic change in that joint before they will authorize that next step. So I want to look to see if he has arthritis, but again, I'm kind of checking a box to get my next study. So, so we send him off to the x-ray. He comes back, we look at the imaging, and I'm just going to say there's slight medial compartment narrowing, but it's symmetric or equal to the other side. So yeah, he might have some early early osteoarthritic changes, but in males, the medial compartment is going to show that first. And in our mid-40s, for an active guy, um, it's not unusual, not expected, but not unusual to find that. So let's just say he has that, but it's equal to the other side. So it's probably not the primary source of his complication or his problem or his, his issue today, but it could be a contributing factor. So x-rays are relatively negative or normal. So our next step is so we could send him to physical therapy, which is not a bad idea. He's done some modification of activities. He's done some anti-inflammatories. He's iced, he elevated. He worked on some range of motion. So he's done a lot of the things that they would try in therapy for the first, he did that for the first couple weeks before he came and saw you. Uh, but he hasn't done a full-on formal physical therapy regimen. So physical therapy is always a reasonable option. So I would consider that and talk to him about that and see if he was interested in that more conservative course of treatment. In this case, he's going to say, no, I really think there's something going on in there. 
And I really would like to find out what it is. I'm not opposed to therapy. If we get another study like an MRI and it shows that therapy is the right way to go, I'm all, I'm all about it, but let's figure that out. And that's often what I hear. Um, and that's kind of what I would agree with at this point as well. So we order the MRI. He goes back and actually we even start some therapy. Let's do both. So we order an MRI and he goes to physical therapy and they're working on his range of motion, which is slightly improving. The effusion is improving slightly. So those two kind of go hand in hand, but he continues to have that medial side of discomfort or pain. Uh, it's getting better, but there's a deep ache in there. And he'll say every once in a while when he's moving around, he's kind of, you know, he gets out of bed or he gets up from a chair. Uh, the knee just doesn't, doesn't work right. There's something that that catches in the knee or gets stuck in the knee, uh, what we would term mechanical symptoms, catching, clicking, locking, popping, something just isn't right. He describes that in his own words, but there's something getting caught and then it goes away. Uh, and it may never show up for the rest of the day, maybe three days before it comes back, uh, or maybe there we step uh, or several steps in a row. So when he comes back for his MRI follow-up, he gives you that history and the therapist, they, they talk to you and tell you that as well. So Shows up again, let's say a week and a half later or whatever, to take the MRI, and we're going to evaluate this. First thing we do, quick evaluation. Talk to them. Anything change in your history? No, other than things are slightly better, but I have this mechanical symptom that's catching it. I'm being a little more active because uh, time's gone by, therapy's helping, uh, but I have this symptom. But generally, there's still that deep, achy pain on the inside of my knee, and I just I want to find out what it is. So we pop up the MRI, and we start looking at the structures. So what do we look at first? We're going to look at the outline of the bones, the femur coming from the top, the tibia coming from the bottom, nothing bony. We don't see any bony problems there. You know, good contour to the, uh, to the outline of the bone. Uh, so no issues with the bony structure. We look at the ligament structure. So we can see the collateral ligaments. Uh, we can see the crucial ligaments. They're intact, look fine. No, you know, no evidence of injury to the, to the ligament structures. We look at uh, on, on really all three views, axillary, coronal, and sagittal, we can see the articular cartilage. So when you look at an MRI, depends on which imaging or which you know type of study we're looking at, T1 versus T2, which is far deeper than this conversation needs to get. But uh, you can see the outline of the bone. Uh, and I'll just say I, I always pull up where the bone is dark, and you can see the outline. And there's a very dense, dark line, almost like a, like a Sharpie, where the bone layer is, and then in a normal knee, in, in, in a healthy knee, there's this articular cartilage layer or a coating layer of cartilage. So if you eat chicken wings, the shiny stuff on the end of the chicken drumstick or the, the turkey drumstick, that's articular cartilage. That coats the bone. Anytime two bones come together, we have that articular cartilage. You can see that in an MRI, almost like a cloud uh, that kind of follows that same contour of the bone. So we'll look at the, the top of the tibia. Uh, we'll look at the into the femur, and we'll look at the backside of the patella for that articular cartilage. The other thing we can look at is the meniscus cartilage. So inside, medial, outside, lateral, meniscus. And on, a, on an MRI, the meniscus is usually a dark, depends on how we look at, which, which image you look at, but a dark triangular structure. And if it's torn, we can see disruption to the surface. And usually we can see fluid inside that tear, which kind of separates the edges of that tear. It makes it pretty obvious to see. So we looked at the say we looked at the bony structures, we looked at the ligament structures, we looked at the meniscal structures. Now we're going to look at that articular cartilage structure, and sure enough, on the medial side of the joint, we can see where there is bright white reaching that dark line of bone, where that cloud of articular cartilage is missing. And you know, I, the way I do this, I always want to look at the MRI myself first. 
and see if I can figure out what's going on and really be non-biased with my opinion. And then I'll grab the report and read it. And in this case, specifically in this case, there was a 15 by 9 millimeter full thickness articular cartilage defect in the central or weight-bearing portion of the medial femoral condyle. So translation, about a centimeter and a half to a centimeter size defect or, or chip or divot of that coating cartilage missing on the end of the femur, into the thigh bone, which makes up the top part of the kneecap, that was missing and bare bone was exposed. And then on a couple of other views, you could see in the back of the knee, a structure about the same size, not, not quite as big, uh, would appear to be a loose body, likely articular cartilage floating in the back of the knee. Uh, so that mechanical symptom was probably his, uh, his that piece of cartilage getting stuck between his femur and his tibia, maybe the patella. Uh, when he stood up, it floated in there. He pinched down on it, squirted out, uh, and hopefully, and, and symptomatically, when he was feeling better, moved to an area of the knee uh, where it wasn't getting pinched any longer. Uh, but there's so there's a loose body, articular cartilage, and there's a defect, mediofemoral condyle defect, full thickness. So that's his diagnosis. Now we have a diagnosis of a chondral defect, so localized area of cartilage that's missing on the end of the bone, and a loose body. So obviously, not obviously, I guess, but in this case, uh, this guy, I think, was a, like an accountant or a banker or something, not medical. So he wanted me to describe or explain to him, what, what does all this mean? So in my world, the best analogy I can use is I say, you know, you're into your femur, picture it to be like an orange. Uh, the fruit inside the orange is protected by that, that peel or that outside, you know, protective coating. That's kind of what the bone is like. The bone is deep to this articular coating cartilage, which really protects it. It lubricates it. Um, but the same, same thing is true for the orange as, as is for the femur. Once you take that first divot, once you kind of take that first piece out, the rest of the orange is pretty easy to peel. Translate that to the body. Once you have that chondral defect where that cartilage is missing down to bare bone, and, and that's what we call a grade four, full thickness grant down to bare bone, and then the rest of that articular cartilage kind of becomes undermined and can break free or come loose with time and with activity. In this case, that didn't look like it has happened yet because this is a relatively acute injury or, or relatively early on in the whole process. But if he ignores this or lets this thing go for probably several months or maybe even years, uh, that articular cartilage may delaminate or come loose and that, that defect gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually that cartilage is gone and now you have a bare bone or you, know, you have an advanced arthritic condition at that point. So a chondral defect is really just arthritic change in a very focused area, in, a, in that divot area or that defect area versus arthritis where that cartilage is missing kind of, you know, front to back or the entire, entire bone surface. So we described him, say, look, you have a chondral defect on the end of your femur. He wants to know what he can do about it. So what are our treatment options? We can always go back to the conservative man management of treat the symptoms of physical therapy and see if we can kind of get along with that. Like I just said, my concern and what I need to tell him as, a, as an educator is that defect can and probably will get bigger with time and eventually kind of outrun the other treatment options other than just kind of modifying activities. You have arthritis probably just on one of the three compartments of your knee. And we could do, you know, if we get, get far enough with that, uh, it may mean that you might need a specialized kind of knee replacement where we just replace part of the knee unless the other two compartments wear out by that time and you do a total knee replacement. So that's one treatment option at the end of the road. Um, the other options are to try to recreate or restore normal, as near normal uh, cartilage on the end of the bone as we can. So that's what he wants to do. 
So we tried to, we talked about the physical therapy. We could do some injections. Of course, steroid injection would help with the swelling and infusion, but it's not going to help that cartilage. We could do an HA or a hyaluronic acid injection, a lubricating injection, which may do a little more than the steroid and decrease inflammation for sure, but it's not going to recreate new cartilage cells in there and fill in that void. So not bad, but not going to really fix the problem. Mostly kind of more of a symptom approach. Or we can try to recreate new cartilage. So we asked, you know, what are my options there? And really the way I describe this to him, I would, I would say, and I did say, um, early on, you know, years ago, there was an option called a microfracture where we can go in arthroscopically. So a couple of pole holes, small camera in your knee. So pretty minimally invasive. Take basically a, looks like an ice pick where it's a, it, it pokes holes in the bone and tap several bone, holes in the bone just below the bone surface into kind of the marrow level and allow blood to leak out of there. And really it's kind of unrefined, you know, stem cell because our stem cells live in our, in our bone, in that blood in our bone, but it's not centrifuged, it's not refined, it's not you know, processed. Uh, we release that, it forms a little scab in that area. And over time with the proper rehab, which I think is key in that procedure, it will form a scab type of cartilage patch in that area. Now, the more recent studies, that was done for years and years. I'm super fortunate to work with the guy who actually pioneered that. And I learned a ton about the procedure. And, and as a side note, I learned more about the rehab that goes along with that, which I think has fallen off for those who do it uh, or those who, who don't do it because they don't believe it works. Um, the, the rehab is, is critical and it's a long time. A lot of, um, you know, several weeks on crutches, non-weight bearing, working on range of motion to kind of polish that cartilage as it toughens up or calluses into a cartilaginous structure. Uh, th without a doubt, the studies have shown that that, that that cartilage is more fibrous than we would like and typically doesn't last as long as we would like. Uh, so it's not an optimal scenario at this point because we have other options, but I think it's a reasonable option for some people to try that microfracture. You don't burn any bridges, you're just poking holes in your bone, you aren't taking anything away, and if it fails, you can always come back and do these other things if you needed to. The other things, so we have microfracture is our first option. The other options we have would be something called an OATS procedure, O-A-T-S, and, and that's kind of an acronym for osteochondral, which means osteochondral bone and cartilage together, otogalus, which means it's coming from you or the patient, transfer. So again, in the past, we would go into the patient's knee and basically find that defect, take the take a little plug of bone out. So the cartilage is already gone. We take a bone plug out that matches the same size as the cartilage defect, and then go to another part of the knee up in the trochlear, the groove where the kneecap runs. On the edge, you have a little bit of bone that doesn't have any, have any surface with the patella. So we can harvest a dowel of bone and coating cartilage all together in one piece and transfer that into the area where that defect was. So basically you make a dowel, or excuse me, you make a hole where the defect is and then you take a dowel of bone from somewhere else in the knee and transplant it, bone and cartilage together, kind of tap it in until the cartilage matches the surrounding cartilage. Uh, sometimes you need more than one dowel and that's called an OATS procedure. Today, we don't do that as often uh, with the, you know, autogalous option so we can do it with an allograft option which means we can keep the same acronym we just change the a from uh, auto to allograft and we can use a fresh frozen cadaver so this is a little bit of a timing issue but we kind of get the patient set up for surgery and we say look as soon as we have the option as soon as the tissue bank tells us we have a donor uh, and it's really a femoral condyle just like what we're trying to, to address here uh, 
a patient dies, they've donated their body parts to science. We are able to use that for this patient. Uh, we have a window of time. It's fresh frozen, meaning that it arrives to the, to the surgery center frozen. We thaw it out in the operating room and we match the size of defect that the patient has. We go over to the back table where this fresh frozen cadaver specimen is and we take a dowel of bone from that transfer over to the patient. So this is an allograft. It's not the patient's tissue, it's a cadaver tissue, uh, but it's basically the same idea as the autograft that we used to do. There are some off-the-shelf options as far as, you know, kind of uh, uh, not freeze-dried, but uh, dried bone with cartilage on it that we can use as well. Uh, so that's the oats procedure. Oats is good. It's a good option. So you're transplanting bone with cartilage on it. It has to grow in, but that bone actually grows into the adjacent bone or the native bone, and that cartilage kind of seals over that, that defect. So oats is a good option. Another option surgically would be something called a MACI, M-A-C-I. So that stands for matrix, matrix-induced autologous, again, from the patient, uh, chondrocyte implantation. So it's a, the, I would say the downside of this option is it's a two-surgery procedure. So you go into the operating room once, pretty quick, you know, 15-20 minute procedure. And we actually take a, a sampling of their cartilage so we can clean up the defect. We'll go over to maybe the arch or the notch where the ACL runs or maybe up in that area I was talking about on the trochlea where the kneecap runs where there's not a lot of pressure. And we take a sampling of their cartilage with a little bit of bone and we send it off to a lab. So we go in there and we'll clean things up as far as the defect. You know, look for meniscus tears, look for anything else, kind of tune up the knee a little bit. Take this um, cartilage sample, um, a couple different pieces of that cartilage with bone attached to it, put it in a, a little solution jar and send it off to a lab. That patient then goes home. They kind of rehab from that quick surgery, which is usually pretty easy. We didn't do much. So uh, recovery is pretty quick from that first procedure. And usually six or more weeks later, the lab says, look, we're good to go. We have enough cells. We measured the size of the defect at that first procedure. They know how many cells we need. They implant those cells on a matrix, a collagen matrix, so a protein matrix. So it comes back um, on a sheet of tissue with the cells already kind of implanted into that tissue. So I kind of picture like a, you know, a thick piece of, of paper uh, with, it's not paper, but it's, it's collagen tissue uh, with those cells implanted on it. At that point, we do another surgery um, usually start arthroscopically and make sure everything's good and cleaned up and then we make an arthrotomy and actually open up the knee joint so we can look in there in a hole directly at the bone, clean things up, put some fibrin, which is part of our blood that actually helps us clot. So we use it as a glue, we put the fibrin in the base of that defect and then match the size of the defect over to that little, that little sampling that they've sent back to us, that collagen little sheet that they have with the cells implanted in it, cut out a piece that's exactly the same size as our defect and implant that in that area. So we basically transplant those cells on that matrix sheet back to the area where the defect is. Plus side is it's their cells. They grew them in the lab, but they're you know, we're putting the cells, the chondrocytes, which grow cartilage, back into the same patient where they came from. And then you know, with that fiber and glue, it kind of just seals it off. You have to put pressure on there for a few minutes in the operating room, and it kind of glues it down, just like you glue, you know, two pieces of paper together, and uh, and we're done. In both of those procedures, the oat, actually all three of the procedures, the microfracture, the oats, and the Macy, we need to protect that area for varying, but differing, you know, different amounts of time, usually limiting their weight bearing uh, for, I'm going to say, average six to eight, maybe sometimes longer weeks postoperatively to allow in the microfracture, allow the cartilage to grow. In the oats procedure, allow those bone plugs and that cartilage to kind of get 
fixed in that thermal conduit where we transplanted them, or in the Macy, get that matrix sheet uh, that we put in there, a chance to grow down, let the chondrocytes kind of do their thing and grow deep into the bone to get anchored and then more towards the surface to become, you know, articular surface, particular cartilage. Um, so we limit their, their weight bearing. And with their foot off the ground, they can go through motion. We'd encourage motion to kind of kind of shape that newly formed cartilage into the, you know, surrounding tissue. We want it to be, you know, contour exactly the same. And um, so range of motion is fine with their foot off the ground, but we limit their weight bearing. And we definitely don't want them to put weight on their knee and bend, weight on their leg and bend their knee, because that would give a shear force across that area and potentially you know, rub any of these new tissues off. Um, let's say eight weeks goes by, we transition off the crutches over the next couple of weeks, we're 10 weeks in, now they're full weight bearing, and then we get into a, a strengthening program, a very slow strengthening program. And this recovery in general, totally, you know, generic number here, uh, but it's a six to nine month recovery phase for really any of these options to get back to where you can really pound on this and get back to activity. So that's how we describe those, those basic three options to the patient, you know, microfracture, Again, maybe have kind of outgrown that because we have the other options here, Oates and Macy. Um, and he's now currently trying to decide which which option he wants to go with. He understands the Oates and the Macy are similar but different in their own ways. Uh, some modifications to the post-operative care and whatnot. Uh, Oates has a one surgery you know, benefit to it. Macy's a two surgery benefit. Uh, in general, Macy's much more expensive. But if we do the, the paperwork correctly and we kind of justify things, usually the insurance will come around and, and help out with the patient. But again, it's, there's cost considerations there. So those are the, the options that this patient is considering. And uh, we likely will you know, get them scheduled for the next couple of weeks here, uh, depending on what he wants to do, either the first phase of the Macy or the oats. But again, the oats is, in this case, we would use a fresh frozen, fresh frozen cadaveric specimen. So we have to wait and the timing on that is really kind of unique. So there it is. That's our, uh, that's our osteochondral defect. Nope. Sorry. That's not what I'm talking about. This is our chondral defect. Uh, osteochondral includes bone. That's kind of a different thing usually in a younger patient, but this is a chondral defect. The bone is fine here. Just the articular cartilage is missing. Um, we would fish those pieces out in that first surgery. Just, just as a side note. Uh, but the patient's trying to figure out what is the best option. And really, we have some pretty good options with the oats and the Macy. And I would say the microfracture is not a bad option if uh, the scenario is right and maybe the patient has a little bit less demand uh, postoperatively. So, again, we're waiting for the patient to decide. Uh, but that's where you are. That's, that's the story of the, um, of the chondral defect. Uh, it, was a, it was a real-life case scenario. The patient had come into the office not long ago. And really, those are, that's, those are the steps that we took to kind of educate, work up, educate, and then kind of you know, allow the patient to make a decision based on facts that fits their uh, scenario of recovery best. So I hope that made some sense to you. I hope you uh, learned something. And like always, let me know if you have other topics you want to talk about. Until we talk again, do your best to stay healthy, be active, and put a smile on someone else's face. See ya. Hey, it's Mike here. I hope this episode's helping you out and answering some questions. If I'm not hitting every topic right on for you, if there's something specific that you have about your injury uh, or you want to discuss unique findings on the exam or your history, your MRI, your x-rays, whatever it might be, head to our website at h2orthopedics.com and scroll to the bottom for an opportunity to sign up for a virtual visit where we can either have a Zoom call, we can do a telephone call, whatever it might be, and we can discuss the specifics of your injury in more detail and hopefully get the answers you're looking for. Again, that's h2orthopedics.com. Scroll to the bottom for the virtual visit, and I will talk to you next time.